This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Francis Kissling and David Gushy. Francis Kissling is a former longtime president of Catholics for Choice. David Gushy is a professor of Christian ethics at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. I spoke with them on September 26, 2012, at a public event at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. Good afternoon. I'm Larry Jacobs. I'm a professor here at the University of Minnesota, and I want to welcome you to the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. This is uh, a special occasion, uh, both for those of us here live at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs on the campus of the University of Minnesota, and to all of you watching live online. On Being is recording this event for radio rebroadcast, and you'll be able to watch the video again at onbeing.org. This is part of a series, the second in a four-part series on uh, civic conversation. And from my perspective, it responds to a resurgent crisis that weaves its way through American history. You can go back to Alexis de Tocqueville, one of our first and most esteemed observers of America who came over in the first third of the 19th century as a Frenchman and was utterly amazed at what he saw in America. And he was a very astute student who marveled at what he saw as a tremendous conflict and tension between the yearning and the demand for community and a civic dialogue on the one hand. And what was quite striking to, uh, to Tocqueville coming from Europe this individualism, this focus on uh, how uh, each individual kind of stood out both in their thinking and in their belief systems and their interests. This tension weaves its way through. You can kind of read the work of noted historian Christopher Lash and see him wrestling with this tension between community and individualism. David Brooks in the New York Times has been, I think, a wonderful commentator on this tension most recently uh, yesterday, but, but throughout really the last few years. Today we see, once again, a hyper-focus on difference in individuals. And part of this is from a breakdown in our civic conversation and in our communities. Some of the forces include global markets that are homogenizing what we talk about, what we're able to buy, and uh, how we relate to each other. But there's also been tremendous strain put on our shared bonds based on religion, religion, civic organizations, and many other sorts of identities. The polarization and the corruption of our civic uh, uh, spaces where we can talk to each other has been one of the most profound losses of the last few decades and one that a great many Americans have complained about. Krista Tibbet has developed this series and I think has been a wonderful antidote to this breakdown of, of civic dialogue in, in our communities in the most fundamental uh, ways. Tonight's conversation, pro-life, pro-choice, pro-dialogue, is with Francis Kissling and David Gushy. And as I said, it's the second of a four-part program. These conversations are taking on dynamics that epitomize present challenges and chasms in American civic life, from the budget and economic crisis to politically engaged Christian action, same-sex marriage, and tonight's topic, social values, 
clashing around abortion. Taken together, these conversations are culling diverse wisdom on the state of American democracy and civil society in a time of strife and division. We have pulled together a very diverse, diverse group of organizations and policy centers to participate in this effort, uh, including the Humphrey Schools Center for the Study of Politics and Governance, but also including the Brookings Institution and the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics. Now, let me just give you a little bit of an insight into where we're heading uh, this evening. Uh, we're going to have a Q&A session in about 45 minutes. For those of you in the auditorium, we'll be providing a blank note card in the program that was handed to you on your way in. We'll be walking around collecting your questions midway through the conversation. Those of you watching online, you can uh, go to onbeing.org slash ccp and enter your questions in our live blogging forum or via Twitter. Please use the hashtag CCP2012 and address it to at being tweets. And yes, for those of you here, please feel free to tweet about the discussion. We do ask that you mute your mobile phones so that you're not embarrassed if they go off. One last request, we are recording this event for broadcast and we ask that you stay in your seats for an extra minute or two at the end of the conversation in case anything else needs to be recorded. And now to introduce our panel. It's a great pleasure to welcome and introduce Krista Tibbet, Peabody award-winning broadcaster and New York Times best-selling author. Krista is the creator and host of On Being, which airs on more than 250 public radio stations across the country. Krista is clearly a treasure. Joining Krista is Francis Kissling, president of the Center for Health and Social Policy, which works to strengthen civil society's engagement in the development of social policy around the world. She was president of Catholics for Choice, a position she held for 25 years. David Gushy is distinguished university professor of Christian Ethics and Director of the Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercer University in Georgia. He's author of several books, including the forthcoming, The Sacredness of Human Life. Please welcome Krista Tibbet. So I want to thank Larry for that introduction. He's been such a great uh, collaborator and conversation partner all the way through this. And welcome to everybody who's with us online, uh, on Twitter, which I can't believe I'm saying this, but has become one of my favorite places to spend time in the last two weeks since I started on Twitter. Um, uh, I think there may be some people here from the Public Conversations Project in Boston, which is something I learned about when I first talked to Francis Kissling last year. And uh, it's among the, there's a universe of people and organizations out there doing wonderful things which feel countercultural uh, compared to what we see in the news. And I'm grateful for them. And, and part of what I want to do is shine a light on that. Um, and I'm also delighted that Marie Griffith is here from the Danforth Center on Religion and Politics, another great, relatively new project in American civic life. And we'll meet her a little bit later on. Um, no issue is more a symbol of culture war than abortion. And it is also a symbol of how we have impoverished our approach 
to intimate civilizational questions. One of the premises behind this Civil Conversation series is that we are not all going to arrive at a universal shared set of convictions on this kind of question anytime soon, if ever. So can we continue to allow them to tear at our civic life and our political process? Could we start our discussions and our encounters with each other in a different place? One that honors the importance of how we conduct ourselves, even with enemies, and even as we continue to hold passionately held and important convictions. Can powerful activists in this debate let in the complexity and the nuance and the good old-fashioned confusion that many of us feel, many of us bring to this subject from many places along the political and ethical spectrum? And if they can do so, what can they teach the rest of us? So here today we are going to attempt um, such an adventure in which we put legal arguing to one side and speak together in human terms. And we're going to experience a politically countercultural relationship that Francis Kissling and David Gushy have begun to form across the years. They've been together in different settings, though I'm pleased to say that this is the first time we're, we're having, a, we're, this is a first, the first time that they are together one-on-one -on -one in a discussion. Um, so David, I, I want to start with you. Mm -hmm. You were raised Catholic, and you have become a Baptist minister. Um, I admit it. It's true. It's true. <laughs> so I wonder, in your earliest life, and also in that trajectory, clearly there's a story there, mm -hmm. um, where do you trace the seeds of your concern for these issues that collect around the subject of abortion? It's interesting. I wouldn't say it's because... Uh, of my Catholic upbringing, at least not explicitly, because I don't remember the kind of 1970s Catholicism that I was coming through in talking about abortion much. Um, it was before John Paul II, before abortion became a flashpoint issue. Um, and it wasn't really, once I became a Southern Baptist as a 16-year-old and learn how to drink sweet tea and, you know, stuff that... As Baptist... opposed to the other stuff you were drinking <laughs> that's before? That's right. Yeah. The, we'll the talk Catholic stuff. The, the Catholic yeah. stuff, that's right. Um, <laughs> All right, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's probably about enough on that subject. Um, <laughs> but I would say uh, it was um, when I uh, entered the progressive evangelical world, during the last stage of my dissertation, I needed a job to support my family, and I ended up working with Ron Sider at Evangelicals for Social Action in Philadelphia, progressive evangelical. He was the first person I heard talk about a kind of a holistic or consistent ethic of life. Mm -hmm. And he had been affected by reading uh, John Paul II and Cardinal Joseph Bernadine on the idea of a holistic, consistent ethic of life. And I found that terribly attractive. But now that I look back, I realize there was one other factor that was playing a key role at that time, and that was I was writing my dissertation on the Holocaust. And I had three little kids, and I would work all day, and I would go home at night and write about the mass murder of children and everyone else. And I think that um, the desire to live in a world where we stop killing each other so much dovetailed with the with my exposure to this ethic of a consistent ethic of life 
and it, it began to crystallize there. And so for me, it's never really only or even mainly been about abortion. It's about an overall vision of a of a better world, a transformed world. Could you just say, consistent ethic of life, could you just say in a few words what you mean by that? So not just abortion, but what's part the of that larger picture? The idea that if you are a Christian, which I am, um, that a primal moral imperative coming out of our faith is that every life matters. Every life is sacred, and every life must be protected, and we should seek the flourishing of every life. And that has to do with issues, as was once said, from womb to tomb across the lifespan. You've talked a lot about, in recent years, you you have agitated about torture being a Christian issue, yeah. war as is a Christian issue, so that's all part of that it's picture. It's all there. Okay. Uh, it's important for people to understand that about me. I, I helped to lead the, res, the resistance to, to torture during uh, the, the Bush years, Bush-Cheney years, and it is totally consistent with and a part of my consistent ethic of life. So, Francis, you were raised Catholic, too. Um, you had a mother who'd been divorced twice and herself was estranged from the church, but you became a nun, a very young nun. Um, well, I became a baby nun. A baby I'm nun, okay. I didn't last very long. All right, oh, you were just a baby nun, and you didn't last very long. You, you left over disagreements with um, church teaching. I want to ask you the same question in that way, you know, in this... Uh, in your earliest life, in this trajectory, where do you trace the seeds of this mm -hmm. passion that brings you here today? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I guess I want to answer that in two ways, which is the early seeds of that, and then the now seeds of, of what I'm what I'm doing now, which is somewhat different. And for me, the the you know, as with many people, the roots of this really are in my own family experience. Um, uh, my mother became pregnant with me before she was married. She was uh, from a small coal mining town in Pennsylvania, the last of seven Polish-American children, came to the big city at the age of 17 and got pregnant with a soldier, uh, chased him, the chaplain made him marry her, and here I am. <laughs> and, um, and, um, and she proceeded to do that three more times. Uh, it, those times she was married. Um, but she proceeded to have three more children. And, I saw in my mother a very bitter uh, person whose, whose life um, was really damaged by parenthood and who in turn damaged her children by parenthood. Uh, and so that was to me a very, very important influence in how I looked at um, questions around sexuality um, and around and around women um, and and around what might be best to do in difficult situations. So that's where the passion comes from in the very in the beginning. And I continue to see that kind of suffering. Um, I think that what has happened, you know, I've worked on this issue since 1970. Um, I started when abortion became legal in New York, and I know what an abortion is. And you ran an abortion clinic I ran clinic an abortion clinic, and I participated in abortions. I mean, I was in the room when abortions happened. I know what women feel. Um, their feelings have passed from them into me as they go through that experience. Um, and it's not a happy experience, but neither were their pregnancies, 
And we don't know what their lives would have been like if they continued. They may have turned out very well, and they may not have turned out very well. But I know what that suffering is about. Um, so I've worked on this in a very long time, and over time, you know, I, I sort of think if you work on something forever and you never change your mind about any part of it, you know, excuse me, but something's wrong. You know, I mean, something's wrong. These are very complicated issues. So, and and now um, I actually resonate with something that David said because my cons I'm, I'm still deeply committed to the legal availability of abortion. I believe it can be a moral choice. Um, I don't have the same sense that David has of the same kind of sacredness of all human life that he has. We differ on that. Um, but I have a deep concern about killing. I, I, my approach to the issue now is somewhat different because I'm interested now in how we as a society um, for the same reasons you are, not, maybe, not, maybe not the same reasons, I don't know for sure, but for similar reasons, perhaps. I, I think that we don't take the act of, the, the actor. I'm concerned still with women in this sense. And I'm concerned with what it does to us, to anyone who kills, whether one is a soldier or a woman or a doctor who gives injections to, in capital punishment. I mean, a whole range of these kinds of things. Um, uh, people who, who, I mean, I go beyond the human in that sense, people who kill um, sentient animals. Um, all of these things, I think, have an effect on us as human beings. And so for me, the struggle now, or the issue now, is how, how do we um, combine what I see as respect for women's moral agency, and for me, the primary thing is the alleviation of human suffering. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I very deeply feel women's suffering with creating a society in which we take the act of killing very, very seriously. And I'm not against all killing. I mean, I think there are times when killing happens. Um, and that, indeed, when we may need to kill. But how we approach that and how we control that and how we treat it with seriousness is what's on my mind these days. So I don't think I'm wrong about this, but the two of you will know better that um, these categories that we've used to frame our discussion, pro-life, pro-choice, these cut-and-dried categories um, don't describe... I, I think most Americans. Um, mm -hmm. I remember I was very struck in that exit poll in 2004, which was such a heated election, that same exit poll that gave us the God gap. Uh, a majority of people coming out of that, who had voted, who had voted Republican and Democrat, something 60%, something over 60%, said that their position on abortion was abortion with some limits, which puts them in between the two poles that we usually take as the starting point for our discussion. I, um, and so a question I've carried around all these years and I bring here today, and it's exciting to me that maybe today, you know, can we talk in that place? Clearly, the question of what some limits means is mm -hmm. also really complicated. Um, but how can we, 
I wonder how the two of you, and I know that the two of you have your own frustrations with the cut and dried absolutes. Um, could we just start talking right now about getting beyond that language, those categories, those two narrow categories, pro-life, pro-choice. Could we, could we use language that suggests what is at stake and what we want to take seriously as opposed to absolutes? I don't, I'm, I don't even know mm -hmm. if that's a question, but how do you respond to that suggestion? Uh, I think the language is past its sell-by date. I think we should retire it. Um, I think it, it's a, you know, when, when thoughts crystallize or calcify into slogans that don't really explain anything anymore, they're not really helpful to us. It is true that polling shows, you ask the same group of Americans, are you pro-life or are you pro-choice? The majority will say yes to both because, hmm. because they, there's some, something there in the, in the middle and, and also the polling reflects the limits of the categories. Um, I think that we face here uh, a perennial human problem that touches uh, all kinds of dimensions of life, including sexuality, our, the nature of our relationships, economic realities, um, the relationship between morality and law, um, uh, for, you know, how, how one adjudicates rights and all of that. Uh, I'm happy for us to have a conversation where we never again mention the phrase pro-life or pro-choice. Let's try. It's, Let's try. It's not it about may be that hard. anymore, yeah. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's hard to have a conversation in which those terms are not mentioned. Instead, we talk about the, the, the sub-issues, the issues that contribute to the conversation that, you know, that needs mm -hmm. to happen. Yeah. Um, so we've, done, we've taken care of it, Krista. It's over. OK, that's great. <laughs> of course, you have a universe of two Let's, here. <laughs> and then we have half an hour to come up with new language. <laughs> and probably a lot of people who are already listening who are a little angry mm -hmm. and perhaps a little confused. Maybe because we're seen as not being properly loyal to our sides. Mm. Uh, but the problem is these sides have become entrenched. And I think that entrenchment, it's almost like a permanent interest group kind of situation. People, uh, and then people stop thinking fresh thoughts. You know, I, I sense that what's important to the two of you, and I think is important to most of us, all of us, um, is not just the categories or the positions, but what is at stake here? Even as you listed, what we're talking about, we're talking about sexuality. It's impossible to talk about, you know, much less to ponder in some kind of rational way collectively. So there's part of the perennial human dilemma. Um, I like some of the way that the two of you, from your different perspectives on this, have, you know, talked about... So, so David, this is provocative language, you're, that one of your concerns about what's at stake in uh, a society where abortion is, uh, is practiced, is uh, you have a moral concern about a society that depends on abortion to underwrite its sexual and romantic practices. And Francis, you know, from your perspective, you've, you, you talk, you, you've said this, um, you know, making babies is serious business and sex is a pleasurable and meaningful activity with social consequences. Right. And that's an important statement for you as a person on the side we won't name that starts with a capital C. <laughs> um, on that side, which believes that abortion should be legalized. Right. Um, 
I wonder, so as I was thinking about the brilliant questions I could ask the two of you, I thought, I, I realized you could ask much more brilliant questions of each other. When, when you and I first, Francis, first talked about this, you said, I, I said, I wanted to invite David, and you said, I have so many questions I'd like to ask him. I think it would be really interesting for us to hear you ask questions you may have had of each other and possibly couldn't ask on large panel discussions. I don't know, Francis, if you want to go first, since I felt like this, you'd been carrying this around. Well, I, I, you, you've turned to this part of the conversation quick, more quickly than, uh, than I'm warmed up here. Um, you know, you've got to warm yourself up for this uh, part of this. Um, so I, I, let's see, do I have a, a question I could ask you right away? Well, I, maybe just more of a conversation in this sense. Sure. Okay. I, you know, we had one, David and I, David, you and I had one other experience together in which we were on a panel at Princeton on this. Mm -hmm. And um, after the panel was over, you reacted very strongly in print to some of the things, some of the reactions to things that you were saying. And frankly, a lot of it, when I read it and looked back, was things that I said that you reacted very strongly to. Mm -hmm. So you didn't say that quite in your article, but that was the reality. And one of the areas where um, I think that I think is a flashpoint is this: the, the question questions around is our questions around sexuality, mm -hmm. yeah. um, which which very much are at the root of this of, meaning of this question. Sexuality meaning when is sex when when is when is sex? Well, I'd say there are two aspects. One remember is, this is public radio. Okay. When do you? <laughs> Well, I thought you could say anything on public radio, um, as long as you said it politely and in a certain and in a, and, and, and in a certain monotone voice, but, um, <laughs> without passion. Um, but no, I mean I, I think that that Aeneas Nin said. Oh, great. Okay. At least I'm not. At least I'm not going to quote Foucault. But Aeneas Nin said, "We see the world." Not as it is, but as we are. And there's a lot to that. And there's a lot to that. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean there isn't a world beyond how each of us sees it. Right. But we see it as it is. And you and I see the sexual world very differently. Um, I am a product of the sexual revolution. Whatever my mother's experiences were, they're not my experiences as a woman. Mm -hmm. I never married. I never wanted to marry. I'll confess to heterosexuality, which again is perhaps politically incorrect. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I mean, look, you know. And, um, and I don't think that God intended me never to experience sexual intimacy because I didn't marry. Mm -hmm. I really, I, I, I can't imagine this God who would have, who believes or teaches that the only legitimate way for two human beings to join together sexually is if they are married. So that's a, I think that's a very big difference between us because I think, I think, and now I'm gonna let you tell me if I'm right, mm -hmm that you think that's what God intended for me, and that um, I should sit here as a woman on the verge of my 70th birthday, never having experienced sexual love, 
sexual love and full intimacy with another person. Mm. And, and I think that, 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 has a, that must have something to do with how we see um, these issues. And I don't think I'm licentious, and I know I'm not promiscuous, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So you want to say something about that? I think you're a fine person, Francis. <laughs> oh, um, so glad. Um, it's a great question to ask. I want to take it in a direction that links it to abortion. Yep. So Krista will be happy. Um, I think we do have fundamentally different readings of the sexual revolution. That was when, um, I believe, historic limits um, on uh, the historic limits on the morally accepted uh, expression of sexuality were changed. They were abandoned. The idea that sex belongs within a marriage relationship primarily uh, was, gave way to sex belongs within any relationship where two people want to be together. I think that the reason um, for the historic teaching, besides it being more clearly rooted in scripture and Christian tradition, is because it, is because it does better for social order and for the well-being of children. I think that the sexual revolution opened up uh, millions and millions of uh, Americans to having uh, children that they were not prepared to have, that, uh, that the simultaneous birth control revolution did not adequately meet the need. Um, uh, it was thought that the availability of the pill would mean that people could have sex with whoever they wanted to have sex with and and it wouldn't be a problem, but it turned out to be a problem. So, um, so I link our, a society where one out of four or one out of five pregnancies ends in abortion to a society where so many people are having sex in contexts in which uh, a pregnancy would be a disaster. I also believe that the sexual revolution didn't really do any favors for women. Mm-hmm. Because I believe that uh, it, it, it created a context in which um, women would be expected to and would routinely want to have sex, but if things went wrong in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, pregnancy, the, the burden of that going wrong would fall on women disproportionately. So yes, I think that sexuality is fundamentally significant here, and what has happened in our society uh, needs to be considered in that context. I just, so, yeah, just no, want to no, say, it, I think this is... Um, it's really illuminating in a sense. It, it, it's, it starts to help me understand very quickly why we c- contain the discussion to pro-life and pro-choice, right? Because this is an impossible thing to talk about, right? I, it's very hard. It's well, it's very, it's very hard. I mean, I think it's very, it's very hard. It's one of the things I've experienced around what you're trying to do here in terms of, and what others are trying to do around the idea of having a dialogue about abortion. Um, is that people, it's, it's sort of like Buddhism, okay? Everybody thinks Buddhism is easy, you know? Everybody, every, you know, it's like, the, Buddhism is like the sexual revolution, you know? Every Westerner it, it wants, came to, along wants to become a Buddhist, you know? They want to become a Buddhist, and they don't understand that Buddhism is hard, and Buddhism requires practice, and Buddhism is serious. And the same thing is true of everybody, but people who say they want a dialogue, okay? Hmm. And people don't want a dialogue. Uh, they, they want to win. They want to win, <laughs> number one. They want to win. But they also don't want to do what you're talking about, which is this is hard. If David and I really were serious about dialoguing, 
we would be talking to each other, not just here, mm -hmm. but sometime between the Princeton conference two years ago and today, that gee, we kind of like each other and we think we're okay, and maybe it would be good if we talked. We haven't done that. Okay, now. We almost did. We almost did, but we didn't. <laughs> now, almost, you know, I'm a Catholic. Almost doesn't count. <laughs> okay? And, and so, so the thing is, if, if, mm -hmm. if we're going to change the conversation about abortion to move us back to this thing, people are going to have to be willing to talk longer, more sustained. People like David and I are going to, and you know, David has many other things to do. I work on abortion most of the time. David doesn't work on abortion most of the time. He works right. on a lot of stuff. So I'm respectful of the fact that he may not be as hot to get into a long-term dialogic relationship, and he may not have the time for it. But we got to find people on both sides of this question who are willing to spend the next five years hmm. seriously talking to each other on a regular basis with no holds barred. So, David, I'm going to give you a couple minutes before you ask Frances her question. Sure. Because um, I want to come to something. So I interviewed Frances in 2011, and what what I didn't realize at the time became this civil conversation series, and this is kind of part two. And one of the things you said to me, which I thought was very provocative, thought-provoking, and challenging, was that, so you left Catholics for Choice, and you did not change your position on it. You were still in the same camp, if we want to talk that way, but you felt very compelled to be in, be try to be in relationship with your political opposites on this. And so that's been where a lot of your energy's gone. Um, and you told me that one of the things you had learned, and you've written about this, is about the courage to be vulnerable in front of those with whom you passionately disagree, which is, we're, we're experiencing this a little bit here, and I mean, just wading into the water and imagining how tricky it gets. You said that You'd learn to ask some questions, that you had, that, that this kind of relationship requires you to ask certain questions of yourself. Right. For example, what is it, to, to be able to honestly reflect on what is it in your own position that gives you trouble? What is it in the position of the other that you're attracted to? And I, I would wonder if we could, um, I, I'd love to ask that question, I mean, maybe of David first. Um, yeah. I suspect because you also have, are in a lot of dialogue, maybe not enough with Francis, okay. But um, I wonder if these are questions that have come to you as well in some form. What is it in your own position that gives you trouble? What is it in the position of the other that you're attracted to? One of the things I'm attracted to um, and have really learned a lot from in dialogue with Francis and others in the pro-choice community is the sustained, knowledgeable commitment to the well-being of women. And um, that's this issue, no progress can be made on it without that commitment. Um, and many on the pro-life side, especially the most visible folks, they have a tin ear there. They just don't, just, just don't sense that it's that it's, that it's there. Well, one kind, I mean, one kind of help is offered in a certain kind of crisis pregnancy center, but, but the broader, more holistic, getting deep into the realities of women's lives globally, the global perspective really is important too, um, as well as domestically, I think is important. Um, a concern I have 
uh, about my own side, and I know we're not going to focus on legalities, but I will say this, what the main activists in the pro-life or anti-abortion community want is an overturn of Roe versus Wade. Um, I am not at all convinced that if that were to actually happen that they would like the world that they would see on the other side because I'm not sure that it would lead to fewer abortions. I think it might lead to, to more. Um, if especially uh, there was a shredding of the social safety net at the same time. And so, uh, if, so I say to my side, if, if, you, if you're all about five Supreme Court justices overturning Roe v. Wade, you better be all about being in dialogue with everyone who knows about why women seek abortions and are addressing the prevention side and addressing the support for women's side. And in general, that's not where the activists on the pro-life side are to be found. And so I'm you know, deeply worried about that, deeply conflicted about okay. that. So Francis, what is it in your own position that gives you trouble? What is it in the position of the other that you are attracted to? Well, I think what I'm troubled by in terms of, uh, those, those, generally speaking, those who support both the legal and the moral right to abortion, um, which I think is a good thing to support. Um, I'm generally troubled by the one value approach to the question, that the only value that needs to be considered in both moral decision making and in legality is what the woman wants. Okay. And that whatever the woman wants, no matter what difficulty, whatever difficult situation comes up that we talk about, um, abortion for sex selection, abortion very late in pregnancy, um, abortion, um, abortion of, of disabled fetuses. Mm -hmm. I mean, these to me are very, very complicated questions. And what I get back from my movement is if, if the woman wants an abortion, there is no other factor or value that should be considered. And it is, even though, even though I don't think fetuses have an absolute right to life, you know, I have a very different view of the fetus than David does, I think fetuses have value. And I don't think you can make the fetus invisible in the abortion decision. I, th I think abortion decision is a conflict value decision. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm very disturbed when the conflict is, that's what disturbs me about my, the position of those who, who are in favor of legal abortion. The other thing that I'm dealing with a lot right now and have not worked through completely is the role of the state. Mm -hmm. um, again, I think the single-minded position that says whatever the woman wants, whatever stage in pregnancy she wants it, if it's, whether it's a good decision or a bad decision, it's her decision and she gets to make it, and the state has nothing to do with it. I think the state has a lot to do with it. Now, I'm troubled because I live in a failed state that doesn't really care very much about women, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. Mm. And so I don't want to give a failed state too much power. Mm. This is a problem for me. Mm. But I think, as, I, as you quoted, I think there are social and public consequences to procreation. And I think the state has a role, and the state is us. So I don't like the total privatization of the abortion sure. discourse. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
That's what I don't like about my position. What I like about the I like about the position of of people who who are very strongly opposed to legal abortion um, is their is it that side of that movement that really is troubled. That really is it does have what David what David calls the a consistent ethic of life. I, I could rip it apart, you know, if I was in one of my wind moods, but um, I'm not in a wind mood today. Uh, I, I, but I think that that notion that, that, that there is a holistic um, need for respecting life and life processes is, is very attractive. And I, and I think the arguments that are made about um, wanting to, to expand our sense of who is part of our community is a very attractive argument. Again, there are always advantages and disadvantages and counters to that, and what about this, and what about that. But I think that's, that's a good thing. Um, I, we, I think it's time to pick up the cards. So if you have a question, finish writing it and someone will come down through the aisles and collect those. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, pro-life, pro-choice, pro-dialogue. We're at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. I'm with Francis Kissling, former president of Catholics for Choice, and Christian ethicist David Gushy. You know, Francis, you said this just Following on what you said, I, I, you said this to me before, I, and it's, it's, a, it's a slightly stronger state, statement of what you just indicated. I think the public discourse and our moral sensibility is enriched and challenged by intelligent expressions of concern for all human life. You also, in some of your recent writing, mm. have been, when you said a minute ago, the, the fetus can't be invisible, you made this point that I had not thought about, that, that in fact, technology has made. Like in 1973, um, we didn't have images of, the, of, of a fetus the way we do now. And you, you know, you, you've said that, that um, you, you use the words time warp, that, that, mm -hmm. that the pro-choice, or whatever we want to call it, uh, argument has to take new knowledge into account that wasn't there. Um, I, I think that's very interesting because it made me aware that that, that technology has has changed all of our imaginations. You know, yes. whether whether it has turned into a position or not, it's a new reality we live with that certainly has infused this discussion. Yes, I, I think that the, I think that you know when I said I think it, it picks up on the idea of who is a part of our community. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, like I used to have this old Catholic way of thinking about this, is the fetus a person or is the fetus not a person? And, and I really think that's, that's, a dead or, that's a dead argument. The fetus is the fetus, okay? And it's real. And, it, 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 and as it enters into our consciousness, um, you know, first of all, we knew, we did, we did have, you know, Lars, whatever his name was, Lars Nielsen's photos um, long before 1970. And, Many women who have abortions have already had babies, you know, many more than we think. Mm -hmm. And so women kind of, you know, women do kind of know. About fetuses. They, they know about 
what's inside them and what it looks like and that it moves and all sorts of things about it. We know a lot more now than we did then and many more people know it, but I don't want us to forget that. Mm -hmm. But I, I do think that, 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 uh, that for, for those of us who are pro-choice to have no um, empathy to exp I, I think there's a crassness, I want to say this very clearly, mm -hmm. on both sides of this movement. And I think we recognize more readily the crassness on the other side than our own. I think those of us who are pro-choice are often crass about the fetus. And I think those who are, who are pro-life, and we're using those terms right now, are very crass about women. Very crass. Sometimes. Well, sometimes the same on the, right. both sides. But right. let's, you know, like, right. I don't want to push you to be more pro-life than you need to be, David. Right. Some <laughs> Just you know, being honest, just being right. honest. So, yeah. and I, I'm also aware that um, we're in a safe space here. We've created a safe space right here just for an hour and a half. It's an unusual, an unusually safe space when it comes to this issue, maybe, that's not behind closed doors. And the there, real, is no, there is no safe space. Okay. And the real-world dilemma, the real-world dilemma that runs through both of your writing and all the writing and discussing on this is um, the fear on each side of what happens if you give a bit. So both of you are going to probably hear more from people inside on your own side of the, of the discussion um, than from others. You know, Francis, there was something um, you have actually been writing about pro-choice activists um, calling for restrictions on late-term abortions. You've been raising this as, a, as an issue. And one reaction to something you wrote about that was, uh, this is like offering the crocodile your arm so he won't right. eat the rest of you. Right. Hmm. And that fear is real, and it's based on real experiences. Right. Well, I think that, that you know, when you speak, and I, I imagine David has experienced this too, when you speak outside of the box and outside of the terminology that is known in your field, you are often misunderstood. I mean, people don't read what you write. They read what they think you're saying, and they read from their you know, defensiveness. So I actually have not been as far out of the box as my own side thinks I am, I'm, you know, in that sense. It's like, oh my God, she's become anti-woman, she's no longer pro-choice, she's lost her moral center. Mm -hmm. All of these things have been said and I hear them. Um, but, but I think that, that my, I think, that, you know, if we're gonna go beyond legality, then we have to answer the central question of ethics and morality. And that is to grapple with what is the right thing to do? This mm -hmm. is what it's about. And so it's not, I'm not, interested in, I'm not interested in compromise for the purpose of compromise. Like if I give you this, you know, I give you a finger and you give me a thumb or something like that. <laughs> I'm interested in, in what's the right thing to do. And I no longer think that the right thing to do, and I don't know yet exactly how to deal with this, I no longer think the right thing to do is that the only answer in the abortion question is if a woman wants an abortion, whatever period of time it is and for whatever reason it is, that's fine. I, I think there's more to this than that. And I think there are more factors. And I would hope that David thinks, although he's supposed to ask me a question, I would that's hope that what David thinks is that there is more to this question of what is the right thing to do than that from the moment of conception, the conceptus 
has an absolute right to be carried to term and brought into the world. Now, so I don't, I, you know, I may actually have a little more, I don't know, I'm, I kind of, I'm feeling righteous because I think I have a little more room <laughs> than you do, but I'd love to hear you <laughs> tell me that you've got some room too. Well, first of all, uh, I think that what you're saying from your side is, is just a tremendous step forward. Um, and uh, I think that on my side, I would just say that this is an unsolvable problem apart from broad cultural attention to the well-being of women, to the fragility of our relationships, uh, to the weakness of our social safety net, and all kinds of factors, the problem of poverty, all kinds of factors that lead people to make the desperate choice of having an abortion. And to the extent that the pro-life side hasn't attended to that, it has not contributed to the conversation we've needed to have. Can I ask my question? You can. Okay. Um, I was very struck when I dug a little deeper into the, the polling as to the reasons women give for why they choose abortion. And some of the demographic data from Guttmacher, like um, mm -hmm. that 60% of abortions are uh, obtained by women who are up to 199% of the poverty line. Yes. That, um, uh, that many women say that the reason they had an abortion is because of the fragility of their relationships in their family or with their partner. Um, then uh, I had this really quite staggering experience when I, I, I learned that some people at a, at a university when, that I know about, I don't want to embarrass the university students, but when they heard that I was doing this conversation, the con and anyway, the, the, the students, the guys were saying, well, if a girlfriend of mine got pregnant, I would just tell her to have an abortion. I would just tell her to have an abortion. Right. Okay. So my question for you is, given pressure from boyfriends, husbands, fathers, given poverty, right. is abortion as a routine social practice empowering for women? I think that the, pro the problem is, I don't think abortion is empowering for, for women. I, I don't think that childbearing is particularly empowering for women either, by the way. Hmm. I, I, you know, like when people say to me, well, you know, the, the thing you say is that abortion lets men off the hook, okay? My experience is that men are off the hook. They just are? They are off the hook. Oh, and existentially they, kind of off, off the hook. The hook. Okay. And, they are, <laughs> and they are off the hook if you have the baby, and they are off the hook if you have an abortion. So for me, it's a, it's a false argument mm. that you make. Because, mm. you know, they're not going to, you know, like the number of men who don't support their children and the society who allows them not to support mm. their children is much higher. I'm hypothesizing I would have to ask Guttmacher to tell me the truth. Mm -hmm. But my hypothesis is that's a much higher figure than the number of men who say to the woman, have an abortion. Ah, you got pregnant, have an abortion. Um, you know, and of course, so, so I, I just don't think that those, those arguments don't, don't, move, don't move me. And it's like, okay, you, it, it drives me crazy that large numbers of women have abortions because they can't afford to have babies. That's what the Guttmacher says. Now, right. Guttmacher also says that women have six or seven reasons. Right. Okay, they don't have one reason. They have a lot of reasons why they have an abortion. Right. 
And we don't know whether they tell the truth because there's a lot of stigma associated with having an abortion. And so it's easier to say I'm not having this child because I can't afford it than it may be to list a lot of the other reasons which might sound more selfish. Okay, so we don't know a lot. We, we, you know, it's, it's not easy as a woman to tell why you're, do, why you're doing this. But it's wrong that women have to have, it's not wrong that women have an abortion because they can't take care of children, in my humble opinion. It's wrong that they have no choice but to have an abortion because, or they feel they have no choice because they don't have the money and the resources to take care of a child, children. But I don't think that's a reason to make abortion illegal. I think that's a reason to take women out of poverty. I think that's a reason to do the things that empower them. And I would, you know, I mean, my big thing is that I think that the big thing for me is I want more women to use contraception. And I, I agree. want people women and to men. be responsible. Women, I, I, you know, and I get, you know, beat over the head for this too. I want women to be, and men, to be responsible because I think procreation is sacred. I wonder, we need to move to questions. We want to move to questions. I want to ask you quickly on that note before we do. Um, you're both religious people. Catholic, you're the, uh, Francis is the Catholic and you're pro-choice. And David, you are progressive, evangelical, and pro-life. Um, how, uh, it, it seems to me that in the Bible, um, life and choice are both gifts, there's no, yes. there's no discussion of rights in the Bible. Um, you know, how do your religious perspectives inform your positions? Um, and, and it, 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 you know, could, could, could we and should we, might we start this discussion in completely different places if we were, if we were really religiously Focused. I don't know. This is a very big question, and I've said you have to give quick answers, but quick answers. Well, I would just say that there are a few references to rights in the Bible, actually, and they generally have to do with, with the rights of, of the most vulnerable, those who have no one else to stand up for them and protect them. And um, so, actually, the way I think about this religiously, at one level, is you've got two groups of, mar of sometimes marginalized and relatively powerless people. I'm thinking of the desperate women that I, I talked about in my last question and the children that they are carrying. And, and we've set up a situation where one, in a sense, nobody wins, but, but the child ends, the child is, is ended. Um, and so we have to do better than that. And the only way to do better for either the child or the mother is to do better for both. And I, I, I believe in a God who cares about the well-being and flourishing of both. I think for me, one of, I mean, I, one of the things really is um, the notion of life as a gift. And I don't think you can force gifts. I, I think coercing a gift, the gift of life is the most, is the most precious mm -hmm. gift you can give. And coercing that, to me, takes away all the gift character of it. I think you can encourage people to make hard choices and to make the gift more valuable by doing something that is difficult. But to coerce one, to me, would be, would be terrible. And I, I think that is, comes from a faith notion okay. of, of the gift of life. I'm Krista Tippett with On Being. 
conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, pro-life, pro-choice, pro-dialogue. We're at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota with Christian ethicist David Gushy and former longtime president of Catholics for Choice, Francis Kissling. I want to introduce Marie Griffith now. She's going to moderate the question and answer set session. She is the John C. Danforth Distinguished Professor in the Humanities at Washington University in St. Louis. And she's the director of the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics. And as I said, we are delighted that the Danforth Center is a partner in this entire um, civil conversations adventure. And as a scholar previously at Princeton and Harvard and now at Washington University, Marie has worked on issues close to those we're discussing today. She's currently at work on a book titled Christians, Sex, and Politics in American History. Thank you so much, Krista. And thanks. Uh, we're delighted the Danforth Center on Religion and Politics to be co-sponsoring this event. Uh, you all are primary sources for my own research, so I thank you for the thoughtful conversation that you're having here. Um, we've gotten a lot of very thoughtful questions, both from folks in this audience here and also from online. So I want to just raise some of these. Some of them are general questions, and there are some that are specific questions for each of you. Um, I'd like to start with a general question that I think is provocative from someone here in our audience. Uh, they write, it was stated that this is really a conversation about sexuality, that any time we talk about abortion, we're also, or, or perhaps even more, talking about sexuality. Could each speaker say something about the abortion debate as instead about power and control. And I take it that may have something to do with, with gender power and control. Um, so David, would you, would you respond to that? And then uh, Francis as well. At one level, this is about uh, who has the power to end a life and uh, what social restrictions will be placed on that power. Um, I think it's about the powerlessness of the developing child who lives or dies based on somebody else's decision. Um, it's about the relative power of men and women in, in our society. Um, but I have ambivalence about, and that's the, why I asked Francis the question about empowerment. Um, and I think I heard you say a, a, abortion doesn't always reflect empowerment. I mean, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, I guess, from your perspective. Um, I think that our abortion regime, our system, has helped to uh, intensify a power struggle between men and women. And I'm not sure who has benefited from that. Um, so those are some thoughts that I would have about power. Um, obviously, there's a lot we could go back and forth on. I mean, I'd like, I'd like to understand that. But um, we don't have time for that right now. But I, I would say this. Sex is about power, too. Okay, Abortion is about power. Sex is about power. Uh, women's lives are about power and or control or both. I mean, the, 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 the links between all mm -hmm. of these things are very, very strong. Mm -hmm. um, the, the question, you know, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. We don't have to talk too long about everything. Yeah. <laughs> and I just do want to say, I do want to say that I wish <laughs> you had been allowed to ask your questions in your own voice, because I would have liked to have gotten to know you but I understand how difficult that is. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Um, our second question is for you specifically, Francis, and this is also from someone in our audience here. Um, they write, in your 2011 On Being interview, you discuss the arguments, uh, the problems of incrementalism, the strategy of incrementalism versus sort of all or nothing arguments. For instance, uh, pro-life incremental steps against partial birth abortion. Uh, this person asks, can you please revisit this idea in light of, I think, the, the kinds of dialogue and discussion that we're having right now. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say two things about this, and it gets a little bit into, into strategies. Yeah, I mean, can you define also what, what well, I think what, I think generally speaking, what people talk about in abortion is either one has an all, or, that one has an all or nothing position, okay, that, that um, uh, th there are those who, who are in favor of abortion who say abortion under any circumstances, basically at any time in pregnancy, and that's a very small percentage of people who are pro-choice, and it's not what Roe says, but that, that you got to have it all. Um, and, and then you have, uh, it, it often operates in situations where abortion is illegal, where people adopt uh, who are in favor of legal abortion adopt an, adopt an incremental strategy to making it legal. And this is particularly true in the developing world, where, mm. well, let's just get abortion available in the first 12 weeks for a couple reasons um, and get our foot in the door. And then maybe we'll make it more legal later. And then you have, on the other side of the coin, you have a, the, the current strategy of those who would like to see abortion illegal um, and this varies from person to person, but those who would like to see it completely illegal, who or largely illegal, who are prepared to see that implemented on a slow basis. So, well, let's get some more restrictions, and then maybe eventually we'll get all the restrictions, and eventually we will either overturn Roe or return it to the states or whatever. So incrementalism has become, in the US, a larger strategy of those who are opposed to abortion than it is for those who are, and it's popular, because people believe abortion should be legal but restricted. That's what the majority of Americans believe. So it works to make abortion more restricted. Um, I don't know if there's, is there more that I should, so, so I, think that, I think that, you know, the problem, the problem with all of this is that the discussion does, it, the, it, it, there is a way in which some of this becomes lacks a certain, for me, a certain integrity. Okay. It, it becomes a practical political strategy right. as opposed to having a broader discussion. About what is it? stake. About what is it really, you know, wh yeah. what's really, what's, again, what's the right thing to do? Why, why, is, why is it okay here and not okay here? What's the difference between mm -hmm. the 12th week and the 14th week? Um, does a woman always, do, you know, what do women need uh, from the pro-choice side on an incremental, I mean, I would be called an incrementalist um, because I'm prepared to see some restrictions. Um, I don't like the kinds of restrictions that have been suggested. I have other restrictions of my own in mind that I think are better. But um, I, I think that, that, that you know, again, it, it, it's, it's, it's really the core question of what is, what, what really is the right thing to do here? Mm -hmm. And how do we, ba for me, it's a balance question. How do we balance the, the, the many, many things we're trying to, to, to honor if we're more than, if we're interested in more than abortion, than the act of abortion. 
Can I just say one thing about that? Um, incrementalism is just a term in you know, the policy-making process. It could talk about any issue. I think it, that discussion that Francis just offered reveals that where two sides have fundamental mistrust of each other, um, then, then they don't know whether somebody is, is always going to push for one more step. If you give them Right. A, they're going to want B. If you give them B, they're going to want C. So we better not give them A. Right. That's right. And that's okay. what people say to me, Francis. Right. You're, cra you know, you, you, you're crazy. You know, you're, you're willing you're to see. You're giving the crocodile your arm, so they don't take the rest give, of you. You know, like they're going to take your arm, and then the next yeah. thing you're going to do, they're going to take your heart. Yeah, but then the bottom line of that is, we could never even come close to any kind of a quasi-consensual middle ground because nobody's willing to move to A. That's right. Because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, David, a number of listeners are interested in having you expand on some of your ideas around the social safety net. What, what sorts of yeah. policies in particular around women's lives you would advocate? Um, Helen wrote in online about the lives of children, noting there are hundreds of thousands of kids here who will likely never find homes because they are the wrong age or the wrong color, so that skews even the adoption mm -hmm. issue. Um, what about their lives? Can you offer some specificity about policies you'd like to see as part of a consistent ethic of life? Um, well, the way, this, uh, the way I've seen this broken down is, um, at one level, uh, intelligent measures to help people prevent unintended pregnancies. And I have, I'm on the record as an evangelical as saying we need uh, to make uh, contraception, uh, uh, comprehensive sex education, including the use of contraception in every school. Uh, and uh, evangelicals need to drop their linkage between contraception and abortion as if they are equally problematic because I from the I don't see why that would be the case from the evangelical perspective so contraception and I, I put that on the table and that surprised some people at Princeton but I, I believe that uh, also we we uh, we seem to have um, a lower percentage of people who use contraception properly or use it consistently or whatever in this country we need to improve that uh, we we need um, uh, health care so that if, uh, if a woman is pregnant, she doesn't have to think about, I need to get an abortion because I can't get adequate health care. Uh, so there ought to be, uh, you know, hey, especially if you say you're pro-life, you should want to rush to the aid of that pregnant woman and to be sure that she has the health care that she needs. And it's not a question. So same thing with um, expenses for uh, early, you know, for childbirth and for early childhood for children. Uh, we, we need uh, all of that. And so the, the broad concern I have is we, got, we have deficit concerns, we have fiscal concerns, but, but a society that would roll back access to abortion could not be simultaneously weakening the social supports that would help make carrying a child thinkable. My, my nightmare scenario is pro-life people win, uh, abortion access is rolled back without adequate social safety net support, and we have lots of botched abortions, and we have lots of children, even more children, being raised in desperate situations than are already happening, and women not getting adequate prenatal care. I don't, I don't, I, those have to go together. Those concerns go together for me in a holistic kind of pro-life vision. I think those things would reduce um, abort, abortion considerably. But I think that, that, you know, if we look at the international experience, particularly in the Scandinavian countries, and, and in Europe, um, in Scandinavian countries and other parts of Europe, I, I think that we see that even in systems where 
all the things you talk about are thousands of percent better than they are here. There are still significant numbers of abortions, much lower than ours, but significant numbers of abortions. And I think there's something else that we don't do that somehow we're going to have to come to grips with. And that is that the desire to have a child and the desire not to have a child are so strong, so strong. And they're not totally, and they're not even always related to social conditions. There's something existential in that, that is in that being person ignored yeah. in our discourse. I never wanted a child, never. And to have made, and I was lucky, but in the sense I didn't get pregnant, but there is no doubt that if I had gotten pregnant, I could have a baby. I am capable all on myself. I am, you know, woman. Um, mm -hmm. I am capable. <laughs> I am capable of taking care of a kid and being a good mother. Mm -hmm. But I do not want to be mother. And and how you how how to deal with that, and I'm not a product of the sexual revolution in that context. I'm not a selfish human being. Mm -hmm. I am not meant to be mother. <laughs> but I could get pregnant. You know, That's I, a challenge it is. for you. Um, I would just say we, we, seem, we seem to have dropped adoption off the table in mm -hmm. the broad social conversation about this. The, the sacrifice of those nine months, people need support for that too. Yes. We should go to another and, question, shouldn't we? And, and, I, and, I, and the sacrifice of the, and, and, yeah. and the, see, for me, the notion that how one responds to the depth of my passion at an existential level of motherhood is not me. Part of motherhood mm -hmm. is carrying a pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And ask, and it is not, it is, it is, it's, I don't think you're saying it's trivial to ask me to do that, but I think you are, you are really still missing a little bit okay. of how much you are asking of those of us. To, first of all, you're asking me to risk my life. Every pregnancy carries the risk of death. So this, you know, I'm trying to go a little deeper okay, beyond the kind of things we talk about all the time, like get more social. And, I, and adoption, I'm going to say it. I know I'm talking too much, but I don't care. Um, adoption, <laughs> I think what we have to do is if you want to adopt a teenager's baby, you adopt her and her baby. Hmm. Hmm. Who is taking care of that teenager who gave her baby up? You're not so great by taking a lovely little baby. You're great when you take in a lovely little baby and a problem teenager. That's a very rich idea. That's, that's a profound suggestion. I, I mean, I really like it. And in you fact, betcha. there are many families that do that, that kind do of thing. That do take care of the teenager, right. not too many. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. let's, let's broaden this out a little bit. A lot of people, a lot of listeners and folks here are interested in the very idea, the very concept of this sort of dialogue. Mm. Um, that Krista wants to create, and I think people are very respectful, even admiring, um, but also want to probe a little bit more about this. So I'm going to ask this in a couple ways. Someone here in our audience writes, how does one balance being authentic in dialogue across an ideological divide, abortion or otherwise, while at the same time advocating for public policy that is one-sided? Mm -hmm. um, 
Jill in Illinois asks it this way, what brings you back to conversations such as this one? I'm sure there have been times when it seemed hopeless to pursue dialogue on this heated topic. What keeps you in dialogue with the opposition besides the hope, <clears throat> the hope of changing their minds? Hmm. David, do you want to start with that? I guess I would just say we live in a, a national community and this national community is fractured. And as a human being, as an American, and as a Christian, I think I'm called to seek reconciliation. And um, so I also think that this fracturing is really bad for us. It's, it's bad for our national soul. And it also distracts us from attending to other problems because we're so gnarled up on these kind of culture wars type issues. So for all of those reasons, I don't feel like I have any choice but to engage in the conversation. For me, I've given up participating significantly in the political process on abortion. I, I, I think it's very mm. hard. I think it's, I agree with the person. It's very, I mean, for somebody like me who was such a proponent and, mm. such, and, and is such a lightning rod on this issue, um, I think the only way that I can be credible on this is to, is to give up the hard political side, um, you know, and there's enough people who want to do that. That's not a problem, um, and and to really concentrate on the other side. And the other thing is, I go into this because, what I said before, it's not to change anybody else; it's to change myself. Mm -hmm. It's really about if if I don't if I'm not prepared to change my position, then I don't think. And Thich Nhat Hanh said this best of all. He's the one where I got it from. He said, "You don't go in, if you don't want to. If you don't want to be changed, don't go into dialogue. I want to be changed all the time. I get bored." Maybe just one or two more questions. Sure. Um, a couple of questions have come from people of other faiths. So we had a young Muslim man here who asked about these questions. A couple of people have pointed out, particularly in regard to you, David, that your, your position is obviously um, a very Christian position, and we live in a pluralistic world. Uh, do you see problems with that? Is that a conflict for you? Or how do we balance this sort of the Christian convictions mm -hmm. that go into this with the broader pluralism and multi-religious world that we live in? Always an important question when dealing with the values connection to public policy. Um, but I would just say we all bring our values into public life, uh, into our citizenship. Um, I, I, you know, and so for many people, not everybody, those values are religiously motivated, religiously grounded in some deep fundamental sense. So I try to be transparent about the religious convictions that ground my values encouraging other people to be just as transparent about the religious convictions that ground their values or the non-religious convictions. In the end, public policy has to be made by the community as a whole, reflecting the, plur the pluralism of that community. Um, and we have to be able to give good public reasons for our views, things that, that make sense according to the Constitution and American values and things like that. Um, but I, I go for transparency so as not to, not to veil where I really come from. Mm -hmm. Francis, did you want to no. touch that one? 
One last question. Mm -hmm. um, so I think folks were very taken with Krista's question to both of you, uh, asking you to reflect on what made you uncomfortable in your own movement. Mm -hmm. And so someone has essentially asked the question, how will you take some of this back to your own movement? Are mm -hmm. you in dialogue and discussion a fruitful dialogue with people on the pro-life side, David, the pro-choice side, Francis, where you think there could be movement along the lines that, that you're describing um, uh, with sort of solving some of those, the crass issues, as Francis put it, the crassness on both sides. I don't know if I really represent the pro-life movement. I don't think so, really. Um, I'm a Christian moral thinker who deals with this issue, as Francis said, um, along with others. Um, I, I, I have such an ambivalent relationship with the, what I think are the ideas and the power structures and the, the ways of doing things of that world that uh, I don't really consult them, answer to them, or, or all that much care whether they feel like I represent them well. Um, <laughs> you know, um, I, I would say this though, um, I hope they're listening um, because uh, the world that they think of as utopia, kind of post Roe v. Wade world, they win. Uh, it doesn't look like utopia to me under the circumstances that I've been talking about, that we've been talking about today. I think uh, we're dealing with a human problem and a moral problem and a relational problem and trying to solve it in a public policy voice. And um, that's right. never going to be adequate. And I think. I also really resent that this has become a kind of a, just a political shibboleth, just play the abortion card, get votes or whatever. I, I think that's so crass about something as profound as this, something as human as this. So um, I guess that's my muddy answer to uh, what, oughta, what, mm. I, what I would say about mm. them. I think the danger that I've experienced in, in doing this um, kind of public thinking um, and, and you know, believing that doubt is a virtue, um, as opposed to moral certitude being a virtue, uh, is that is that it, it becomes a new polarization. Everything gets polarized very quickly. Mm -hmm. And so the new polarization is not those who are opposed to abortion and those who are in favor of abortion. The new polarization is those who believe in common ground and dialogue, and those who follow their principles to the very ends of the earth on something they believe in very deeply. And so for me, right. it's important that, that I don't, you know, and, and you know, like when you criticize your own movement, it immediately, you, you know, or when you, when you point out things in your own movement that are troubling, it immediately becomes a criticism. Um, and it's like, I'm saying they're wrong and they shouldn't be, and the pro-choice movement should change. I'm not here to say the pro-choice movement should change. I think people who, who feel very strongly um, I admire them. I, you know, in, in many ways, in the same way you ask the question of what do I admire in somebody who has a different position on abortion than I do, what do I admire in those people who believe, uh, you know, life, those people who believe women's autonomy in, in, absolute, in relatively absolute terms? That's to be admired. And also to be admired are those who, who are somewhere in between all that. So... You know, it seems to me that it, at, uh, in dialogue at, at this stage, which is uh, more advanced than we often get in our common life, but really we've scratched the surface, right? I feel like we could keep going for eight hours. Um, 
uh, we're not really talking about common ground so much as common grappling, right? Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. is common grappling, mm -hmm. which is a step forward. Common grappling is a whole lot better than ideological talking point hurling. Right. <laughs> right. I think to close, I want to just zero in on this idea of how change happens and what it looks like, what kind of change we're aspiring to. Um, given that common ground is elusive um, and you know there was um, this public conversations project I mentioned that Francis has been part of and David you've experienced them too you know they had a five year closed door in secret conversation in Boston between leading pro-life activists and leading pro-choice activists after People were killed in an attack on a Planned Parenthood uh, center in Brooklyn. And there was incredible trauma on both sides about that. They met for five years, and they, they wrote a, a, a something which is called Talking to the Enemy, which I, we're going to post. I put it out on Twitter today. We'll post online. But I was very struck with the conclusion of these people, how they wrote about the experience they'd had. Since that first fear-filled meeting, we have experienced a paradox. While learning to treat each other with dignity and respect, we have all become firmer in our views about abortion. We hope this account of our experience will encourage people everywhere to consider engaging in dialogues about abortion and other protracted disputes. In this world of polarizing conflicts, we have glimpsed a new possibility a way in which people can disagree frankly and passionately, become clearer in heart and mind about their activism, and at the same time, contribute to a more civil and compassionate society. Um, right, so, so that paradox is so interesting. And I think all of us who've worked in any kind of encounter with difference that was a profound encounter know that paradox you may stand more firmly where you stood before, but you are changed. So I just wonder if in closing, if you could talk about, you know, how change happens. What, what is it we're aspiring to? Francis, you said you're, you're not engaged with the political process anymore. I think a lot of us feel that way. Does it matter if where we live in our book groups and churches and synagogues and, you know, that, if, that we start, just start working towards this new possibility? I don't know. It would be nice if um, we could just have lots of really great conversations that, that clarify differences. I have found that to be true, what, that statement that, that you read. After the Princeton conference in 2010, I felt clearer that the position that I had going in related to the wrongness of kind of mass abortion. I, I, I was clear about that. I was more clear. Um, but also, I was more clear about the intelligence and, and, and the, love, the love that motivated the people on the other side, too. And I respected that. You know, I really saw that. And I got to talk to people I would never have talked to otherwise. And, and I saw we're kind of uh, dealing with the same problem from opposite ends. And, and maybe there's a meeting in the middle of people who care enough about the world to engage its problems at a deep enough level and they meet each other in the middle even if they realize, hey, you know, we, we start from a different place, we go back to different communities, but there's some things that we both care about. 
And um, that is changed, that changed me. And it certainly made it impossible for me to sit by when somebody made some kind of grotesque caricature of a pro-choice person or pro-choice movement say, no, that's not true. You don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, I would like it if we could get some kind of uh, public policy resolution so we didn't have to have, in a sense, our electoral process in every election be about abortion. Um, because I think that distorts our priorities. There are people, a significant number of people who will vote in this election entirely on the basis of this intractable problem, while other problems get, you know, kind of second or third billing. That's, that's just odd. It's not good for us as a country. Well, it's about abortion, but in fact, it's not really about the things we've been talking about here today. It's, right. it's a kind of uh, stereotypical simplification. Right. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I wish we could get some resolution, but meanwhile, there is real value in the conversation. Hmm. It's, it is transformative. And that's enough. At least it, it's something. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Francis Kissling, that can't be your last word. It's too short. <laughs> I never had a good end game in chess either. <laughs> um, well, what about that question of sitting where you sit, knowing what you know? You know, what would your encouragement be to people out there who care about this, who care about women, who care about pregnancy, who care about mm -hmm. the sexual sensibility of our culture? Well, I mean, I, I just think you have to talk about these things. I mean, it really, it really is, it, 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 you know, I, I think that we have l lost in many ways the ability to ask the question, why? I mean, so much of what we do is just knee-jerk. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, knee-jerk about abortion, knee-jerk about marriage, knee-jerk about sex, knee-jerk about poverty, knee-jerk about the 47% of the people who are, you know, disposable um, you know all of, all of that that's that sort of thing and and I, I think that well look and the I question that, why what do you mean the question why why well why do you you know like when somebody says they have a view on any of these subjects um, very rare you know like I, I think we have to learn not to be advocates this is what I'm in the process mm -hmm. of doing I'm learning not to be an advocate and I think what it is is I'm learning not to so, and I think what we all need to do is ask more questions. I think part of the conversation really is about asking questions rather than giving people answers. I mean, this, this is what, and this is what those of us who are advocates do. The minute, you know, like the minute David says something, there's this little part of me that is like, I want to give him the right answer. I want to give him the right facts. I want to take him up on mass abortion language. I, you know, like I, you know, I want to do that. It's useless. That's stupid. It doesn't work. No, but you know, it's not how anybody learns. If, even if, I, if I'm interested at all in him understanding me, I got to figure out the right question to ask him so that he thinks about what he just said more than he has thought about it. I know he's thought about it a lot, but I'd like to get him to think about it more. And I'd like people to ask me questions that make me think about my assumptions, suppositions, et cetera. So, if so we're it's, not, a, it's about questions, if not we're answers. If not, we're not advocates, we, we become what, listeners? Well, listeners we have to become, but questioners. I mean, questioners. we become, become critical. You know, we, we, we don't give up our critical faculty. I, you know, it's my, my closing joke, because I love jokes, is what I always say about the Catholic Church is, the reason I'm still a Catholic is because the Catholic Church asks the right questions. It has lousy answers, 
but it asks the right questions. <laughs> what do you think about that, David? <laughs> I'll let you deal with the Catholic community on that one, Francis. Um, um, I guess maybe a, a walk-away point for me is um, I think we're becoming dumber as a society. Yes. Uh, our politics is making us dumb. Our media, with NPR excluded, um, is, is making us dumb. Um, and, and a first-rate nation is not a dumb nation. I think we're gradually becoming dumber and we are gradually declining because we're becoming dumber. Um, we have plenty of really intelligent people in this society who are able to have intelligent conversations. Academia should be one place where that happens and sometimes it actually does happen like today. Right. Um, but uh, intelligent, nuanced conversation is not rewarded materially or politically. Um, and so engage, I guess my walk away word is engage in intelligent questioning, listening kinds of conversations with everybody you have a chance to have that conversation with. I actually think the younger generation already gets that. Uh, my students, uh, they don't want dumb and they don't want hardline talking points. They really want to understand and they want to have, they want to have meaningful conversations. I do despair sometimes that our politics is not producing that. I mean, even the debates that are going to be coming up, will there be enough space given for intelligent conversation? Or will it be more talking points and you get nailed as a candidate if you don't get your talking points exactly right? Um, I think this is a matter of civilizational significance that we learn how to talk like this with each other again, and not just about abortion. Okay. Thank you, David Gushy. Thank you, Francis Kissling. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Yeah, great. That went so quickly. We were there. I thought we did all. And this was better than Princeton. Oh, Princeton. Yeah. And I'm willing. I'm, I want to pick up the conversation. Okay. I do. All right. We'll I'd try. like for you to see if you can take me to some places that I need to go. Okay. Great. Okay. Is that a possibility? Sure. Do what I want to hear. That's what. I said I want to pick up the conversation. Yeah. And I said I'd like for you to take me to some places that that she thinks I need to go. Right. As in, maybe some places around the world. I know, and I, I think know, we talked about that. I thought we might get to talk about it. I've been here. I learned a little bit about what Francis is doing. Thank you. It, uh, it is. It's going to be on uh, not this coming weekend, but next weekend. Yeah. On M. Um, well, it's very different. Do you live here? It's a dom okay, a male it's on NPR here. It's on NPR. It's on NPR stations, but it's on it here at 10 a.m. Sunday morning. 
and some other time. And I think it may be on next Sunday, a week from Sunday. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Can, yeah. I am. Thank I can you. learn in that yeah. environment. I would love to. Exactly. Okay, you know. do that. Okay. I can make that happen. Can you make that happen? Oh yeah, that okay. I can make happen. Oh, Without I don't any know. Problem. I haven't. I've been. I was just traveling. Yeah. You may want to read it. Okay. Right. Right. Well, there's a, there's a, yes, yes. Thank you. What, so, so, so there is an email. I'll look because I don't think I've seen it. Okay. 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 Mm-hmm. Well, I think okay. you become mother through pregnancy. Even if you give the child up, you will always feel you are mother. Very cool. Okay. It's not, it's, it's, it's good, it's thank you. Right. Yes, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. David, we're not virgins anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. All right. Oh, all right. All right. Yes. Wow. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah, you are. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but I wasn't sure how to rate her. Yeah, she's good. Yeah. 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 Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Good to meet you. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Hi. Oh, hi. I'm so glad you Okay, because you know, I actually, it occurred, I wanted to invite you and them, and I, and I think I, and I don't, and I didn't, you know, it was, it was a thought that occurred to me, and then this all got very complicated. I'm so thrilled. And of course, David, I brought him here a couple of five or six years ago. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. Nice yeah. Oh, it's great to see you. Thanks for all you do. You know, keeps evolving, which is fun. So. Radio 4, which is internal, yeah. like what women yeah. yeah. the world service. 
and and it's I like it because it's because it's like in that version I think a lot of what people think about it and I love reading but what's interesting is hearing them report on just about abortion all these things it starts out by all the ways in America they treating each other like yeah. 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 They randomly fight. Right. Right. David, it's great to see you. How you doing, Bob? Five years ago. Yes. Good to see you again.